Oh, didn't see you there. I'm Molly. And I'm Jen. And we're We're Rosemary's Rosemary's Ladies. A podcast where we eat snacks, drink adult beverages, and review movies. The good and the bad. Previous reviews include Deep Blue Sea, Poltergeist, Leprechaun, and 1998's Godzilla. You can tune in on iTunes, Spotify, and most popular podcast apps. And for Pete's sake, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and check us out at rosemarysladies.com, where you can submit movies for us to review. Welcome to Rock Candy. Hello, everyone. Your weekly podcast, bringing you treats that look really sweet on the outside. But by the time you notice things are pretty fucked, you discover you're in the cult of music. Are you saying we're a cult? <laughs> are we? <laughs> yes. We can be. We. I think we would be the worst cult leaders ever. Speak for yourself. <laughs> okay, well, I would be a terrible cult leader. Speaking of which, we are your two leaders. I mean, hosts. I'm Maggie. I'm Ashley. And this week we're talking about cults, but not just cults, music in cults. Which is the best kind of music. At least the best to make fun of. Oh, okay. Because from what I have researched, oh, we're, we're not gonna, great. We're going to make fun of a lot of shitty music. Oh, guys. <laughs> Buckle up! It is a roller coaster ride of garbage oh. music of of guys, white guys with guitars who thought they were really good musicians, <laughs> and they're not. Yeah. Well, one of the ones that I'm talking to is actually a black supremacist. So not all not all white guys. Oh, <laughs> not all white guys. It took me a minute to be like black supremacist, and I still interpreted that as as a white guy. <laughs> yeah, and he was just suppressing blacks. Either way, when I hear supremacist, I just assume. Oh, I automatically go to stupid skinny white dudes that yeah. just are I just mean, the worst. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Ooh. Ooh. Ew. But there is a surprising amount of music in cults. Yeah. I didn't even really realize it until And we're only recently. Yeah, we're only talking about three of them today. Yeah. But we had a list. Hold up. Yeah, we had a very different way this was supposed to go. (laughs) And I think between the two of us, at least I had two people lined up and I just really dived into mine and I was like, I'm stuck in a sea and I shouldn't have ever just thought I could talk about him and someone else. I narrowed it down to three. I only got through two. And even one of them I had to cut down pretty good. Yeah. But I I could have talked about him more, but Oh you know. Oh mine I I I'm gonna admit it now, I should have just done a whole episode on him. I uh, Well maybe I one t- day we can do an extended episode. Ooh, extended play. Yeah, we can do an EP. Ooh. On your guy. Look at us. <laughs> talking about EPs. There's some music to be had in the cult oh, world. Boy. Wow. Is there? Get a drink. Yeah. Get yeah a drink. Uh, tonight, in lieu of the flavor aid, actually, we are going to be serving up profits and nomads from Collective Arts again. Again. They have really good true crime Halloween themed 
beers, I guess. Yeah. I don't think we even noticed it till today. We're like, oh, we've, we're having a lot from Collective Arts. Okay. Yeah. This is the second one in, oh, I think eventually it will be three this month. Yes. But Teasers. We spoilers. might have one more from Maybe. Collective Arts. Maybe. So if you want to do your homework and try to figure out which one it is, you add us. We'll send you a, a card. We'll send you something. Yeah. A button? Ooh, a you button got a and a button. card. <laughs> Look, we don't really have merch yet. And I, we're not at that point yet. We're not big enough yet. I, or maybe we are. Who knows? That's, no, nobody's letting us know if we're that big yet. No. Nobody I think, has... I think that's why I think we wouldn't be good cult leaders, is that we should just be like, yes, of course we are ready for merch. I'm just really the bad at... The masses will love us. I'm just really bad at networking. I just... Expect everybody else to do it. Can also, you just I'm, come talk to me? Because me having to talk to you is like hours of anxiety before yeah, I get around to doing it. I just don't want... I just Can a, a cult consist of one person? That one person being me. No. That's oh. just that's just you being you. That's just you <laughs> strutting around being Ashley. Yeah, I just, I just don't want it. But uh, I will say that there is another podcast called The Dark Corner of Radio, and I'm going to shout them out because they recently put out an episode about cults. Ooh. Very good. It's 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 a little more brief, but he talks about a good handful of them, whereas we're, like we said, only going to cover three. Yeah. So if we're missing anybody, you should head over to him, Dark Corner of Radio. Pretty good show. I like it a lot, actually. Cool. Yeah, so check him out. I guess let's roll into what you got, girl. <laughs> well, what girl. you got, girl? Well, girl, girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna start this off with my personal favorite cult leader, David Koresh. I like that of, you have a personal favorite cult oh, leader. He is by far my personal favorite, just because he in the eighties he had some sweet Dave Mustaine hair. Oh God. So that's really the only reason. Everything else about him is shit. Oh, it so. is. But he has beautiful hair. Oh, yeah, definitely. But David Koresh was the leader of the Branch Davidians based in Waco, Texas. If the name Waco rings any bells for you, it's probably because it was the location of a truly horrible tragedy in 1993 when the ATF and FBI stormed Mount Carmel, the Branch Davidians compound, after which a gunfight and a 51-day standoff ensued, ending in a massive fire that burned the compound to the ground. Oh, my God. And most of the Branch Davidians died. Yeah. It wasn't a great day in America. <laughs> certainly not. And certainly not a good day for the ATF or the FBI. Yeah, there was a lot of just, oof. There not was, a great day. There were a whole lot of questionable actions on the ATF's part through this whole thing, but we're going to get into it. Oh, yeah. So before we get into David's music, let's give a little background into him and the Branch Davidians. Diamond Dave here had a pretty oh rough childhood. <laughs> <laughs> he was born in Houston, Texas. His real name was Vernon Wayne Howell. Yeah, that's not a name anyone's going to keep if they, no. can, if they have a choice. If you have a chance to change it, fucking change it. Yeah. He was born to a 15-year-old mother who couldn't take care of him. So he was raised briefly by his grandparents and then later by his mother and her abusive second husband. Cool. At least she came back for him, yeah, I guess. You can't say that about all but of them. That probably wasn't exactly the best thing since her husband abused the shit out of David. He was dyslexic and put in special education classes in school and was made fun of mercilessly for it. 
His classmates also often called him Vernie and Mr. Retardo. Oh my god, that's not okay. No, it's not. I mean, it's 2018, so hearing the R word is like, ooh. Yeah. Ooh, you recoil. But I guess back in the 40s, 50s? I mean, I remember... People and I fully admit I used that word. Oh yeah, I totally used that word through when I was a the kid. 2000s. Yeah, it so. wasn't really until the last few kids. In case you didn't know, it wasn't really until the last like I would say five or eight years that you can't really use that yeah, word. Yeah, it's kind of like when people used to use the word "gay" to mean stupid. Yeah, although I think that's newer. I suppose that's hasn't that wasn't around for as long as the term "retarded." Yeah, it's a shitty nickname. Yeah. But he dropped out of school his Wait, junior was it, year. It was Mr. Retardo? Mr. Retardo. I mean, at least they showed a little respect. <laughs> at least they said Mr. Right? I mean, they they addressed him formally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after high school, he got into some pedophilic trouble. Uh, buh. In his early 20s. Buh. And then he made his way to Waco. Buh. Yeah, he may have gotten a 15-year-old girl pregnant. Maybe. He's like, it's my mom. My mom did it. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. The Branch Davidians were already an established religious group in Waco, living on the Mount Carmel site and headed up by a woman named Lois Roden. Lois fancied herself a prophetess. And wouldn't you know it, after David joined their group, he started saying he had the gift of prophecy too. Huh. Then he started a sexual relationship with Lois who was in her 60s, Yeah, and David was only 22. Yeah, that was weird. That was a real Harold and Maude situation going on there. And even weirder than Harold and Maude. Yeah. It wasn't cute and, like, whimsical like the movie. I've never seen it. It was was a really good movie. You know. I'll see it someday, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) When you're really bored and have absolutely nothing else to do. And I want to get a glimpse into what David... (laughs) What David David Crash was going through. Yeah. Their involvement in a sexual relationship meant that Lois started giving David some allowances she didn't give other people. That included encouraging David's musical interests. Lois allowed David to sing and play guitar at Bible study sessions and even allowed him to start teaching his own message. This encouragement could only could be why David changed his name at this point to David Koresh because he probably wanted a pretty sweet stage name for his <laughs> rock and roll Bible thumper act. So I can't even remember. Did Koresh come from anything? Both came. David is for King David. Right. I, thought, I knew that was a Bible reference. Koresh is, I believe, uh, the Babylonian pronunciation of Cyrus. Eh, and why not? Some, some <laughs> translation of the name Cyrus. It was all biblical. He thought that he was Cyrus. I don't know who Cyrus is, but that's who he thought he was. It sounds like some Old Testament stuff, and I didn't really get into that. I don't know. Don't at me if it's New Testament. I know I've got a Catholic upbringing's education on the Bible. Like, it's nothing serious, guys. I have an art historian's upbringing on the Bible. You can really admire those, the architecture of of like a chapel in a church. That's what I concentrated in was medieval and Renaissance architecture. So pretty. Churches are fucking beautiful. They really are, though. And cathedrals are amazing. Good job, guys. Absolute masterful craftsmanship. Stained glass, real pretty. It is. That in and of itself is a whole thing. My thesis. My thesis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my the- if I had a thesis right now, 
it would be on cults. I would make it, I would somehow make it into cults. I don't this, give a shit. This research definitely made me realize I could have gone to school for this subject. Like, I would have written my thesis on the subject But I, I would did. only want to take classes that have to do with cults. Otherwise, fuck that. I yeah. am not going back to school. School was the worst. So naturally, this relationship pissed off Lois's son, George. So George kicked David and a small group of followers off the compound. Because David already had a few followers. Oh, and he yeah. had a wife and I think a couple kids at this point. Was he still boning Lois and had a wife? I, probably. All right. I don't know. Two years later, after Lois died, David and the Davidians that were loyal to him, which was most of them at this point. Oh, shit. Well, wait. I mean, did George have the hair that David had? Oh, no. Then, of course, they're not going to follow you, bro. He also didn't have those sweet aviators. Oof. He did rock some sweet aviators. Yeah, he did. Mm. So David and his small group of, and his group of followers went back to Mount Carmel to challenge George for control over the entire group. George had a brilliant idea. Yep. He challenged David to a contest to see who could raise the dead. Yep. That's the thing. George even exhumed a corpse in order to do so. Yep. That happened. Sure did. Guys, this sure did happen. It really happens. Oh, it's It's not even... And that's not even the funniest part. So, I feel like this is some Bible camp bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Long story short, George exhumed the body, but nobody brought dead people back to life. And eventually a gunfight broke out and George was shot by David. Yep. David and his followers were charged with attempted murder, but all were acquitted and all control over the Branch Davidians at Mount Carmel went to David. Yay, good job, David. Eventually, I'm pretty sure eventually George went on to be charged with murder because he killed another guy. (laughs) And he he got thrown in jail. This was when David gained full control over everyone at the Mount Carmel compound. Part of his new doctrine was that all marriages were dissolved. Members were to embrace celibacy. All members except him, of course. Of course. All women in the compound became his wives if he wanted them, and that included underage girls. There were persistent and probably true rumors that David sexually abused a lot of the children in the compound and even took underage girls as spiritual wives. Stop it. Yeah. (sighs) So the Branch Davidians were a doomsday cult. Um, The end game here was the apocalypse. And everything you do is in service of God and, of course, David, who is the prophet of God. For those of you playing cult leader bingo at home, please be sure to put a little tiddlywink on uh, <laughs> Apocalypse and uh, Doomsday. Son of God. Yeah, Son of God, Doomsday. <laughs> um, so because of that, they started stockpiling weapons. With accusations of child abuse and illegal weapons being stockpiled at the compound, the ATF, or the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and the FBI led a siege on Mount Carmel Center on February 28, 1993. The Branch Davidians were tipped off, so they were ready to defend them- themselves to the death because this was this was their apocalypse. This is what was going to bring on the end yeah. of the world. Aww. Ten people died in the initial siege. But a 51-day standoff would follow, which culminated in the ATF crashing through the walls of some of the buildings in tanks and pumping tear gas into the buildings. 
David ordered his congregation to douse the buildings in gasoline and light them on fire. The fire, mixed with the tear gas, turned the compound into a fireball. When all was said and done, 79 Branch Davidians died in the fire, 22 of which were under the age of 17. Yep. 20 people were found in the burned remains of the compound with fatal gunshot wounds. Koresh himself died of a supposed self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head when he was only 20, 33. Excuse me. Must have been nice for him to have the ability to say, you know what? I'm just going to take myself out of the equation. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not going to go by fire or gunshot from somebody else. Yeah, I can just do this myself. Fuck you, David Koresh. But all of you people can just die in the fire. Yeah. That's fine. It is widely accepted that the ATF and FBI royally fucked up this operation. Maybe. They fumbled every step of the way from allowing the Branch Davidians to find out about the siege to rushing into the second siege willy-nilly for Attorney General Janet Reno after Attorney General Janet Reno gave the very ill-advised order to pumping the place full of tear gas, allowing it to go up in flames. Good job, Janet. <laughs> Thanks, Janet. Thanks, All I can Janet. think of Damn it. is fucking- Janet. I don't love you. I don't. Every time I think of Janet Reno, I don't think of her. Do you think of SNL? I think of Will Ferrell crashing <laughs> through a wall dressed as Janet <laughs> Reno. Oh, God. It was so good. Oh, SNL in the 90s was so oh, good. Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. You kids who weren't born in the 90s or 80s. You missed or, like kids who were born SNL. in 2000. You missed out. Yeah. Really bad. Real bad. <laughs> oh god and side note this this waco incident also ended up being the inspiration for timothy mcveigh to do the oklahoma city bombing that's right so and repercussions ruby, ruby rich ruby, ruby rich before waco or after after right because that's why they were so nervous to do anything at ruby Ridge because they fucked up waco so bad yes i believe so yeah but both of those incidents were like the final straw for timothy mcveigh right we watch a lot of true crime, guys. I watch a lot of Netflix documentaries. There's and we one called to a lot of podcasts. Yeah, there's one called uh, Ruby Ridge that's actually really good. It's just Ruby Ridge, and it's real good. Yes. Uh, but throughout his entire tenure as the leader of the Branch Davidians, and even way back when he was a teenager, David Koresh had a deep passion for music. At first, he fancied himself a folk rock singer. But he was clearly influenced by glam rock and wanted to go down that route. Ooh, boy. And he could have gone even more hardcore. He had the sweet mullet. He had the aviators. He had the female followers. And he had a sweet airbrush guitar. Oh, God. If he just focused on music instead of being a cult leader, we could have had, I don't know, White Snake Part 2? Oh, yeah. Okay. Totally. All well, right. uh, he was a little bit softer than White Snake, but here I go again on my own. Cinderella? No, I, th- I don't think Cinderella was softer than White Snake. They're probably the same. They I'm had probably ballads. Just, I'm probably just mentioning all these 80s hair bands that are the same band, just yeah. different names. He probably really liked Here I Go Again on My Own. Who does? Oh, my God. That's probably played when he fucking shot himself. <laughs> That's all I can think of now. Is, Here I go, go again, again on my own. Oh. <laughs> oh no, that's horrible. It's not horrible, but it's not because David Koresh is a piece of shit. True, we can make fun of him as much. As, don't fucking touch children. Just fucking Period. don't. Yeah, like I don't see why. Like 
If you're going to follow any rule in this world, can it just be don't fucking touch children? Don't touch children. Don't touch women if they don't want you to. Don't kill people. Don't kill people. Don't be a racist. Pe- okay, we're starting to ask for too much, all right? <laughs> this is a lot. This is a lot. I get just it. don't touch kids. I get kids. it. This is a lot. We'll, okay, we'll stop. Fine. <laughs> Sorry. We're being unreasonable. But, but I, want, I want to tell you about this airbrush guitar because it's fucking amazing. <laughs> I think pictures he, of it? He, there is a video on YouTube. Um, it was a clip from, I believe, an episode of 2020. Oh my god, of course. At least I remember seeing it in a recent, it was either 2020 or 48 hours, did like a two-week special on Waco because it was the anniversary. Yep, that one. (laughs) Isn't it beautiful? Is it like a winged Pegasus on it? Okay, okay, okay. All right, all right, all right. He had an airbrush guitar that supposedly told the story of Psalm 45, but all I could see on it was a naked woman and a dude riding a Pegasus. It looks like something you would airbrush on the side of a creepy van, and it's beautiful. Oh, my God. It really is. Is that him holding it? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And in that video... He easily could have been. In that video, he says, a lot of people think it's kind of sensual, but no more sensual than the Song of Solomon. Whatever the fuck that means. Uh, I think, is he just talking about the... It's like a four second clip of him just showing off his guitars. Oh my god, he's such a piece of shit. I mean, he could at least be just a douchebag in music. And you could just roll your eyes and be like, ugh, okay. Uh, uh, Fucking musicians. But no, he had to go one step further and touch children and kill people. Thanks, David Koresh. Yep. So the first album he made was called Songs for Grandpa, (laughs) and it's pretty aptly titled. With the exception of decidedly the best song on the album, Madman in Waco, it's a compilation of mostly folky songs consisting of just an electric guitar and David's voice. They're slow, easy listening, the kind of shit your rock and roll loving grandpa would listen to. Oh, rock and roll grandpa. Rock and roll grandpa. (laughs) This one is called... Shoshanahim. Shoshanahim. She's the only one for him. Shoshanahim. She's the only song to sing. Shoshanahim. She's the only one, one for him. Shoshanahim. Oh, that's... That's a good song. It's so bad. That's a really good song. Oh, I could see some douchebag playing that in the quad. Yep. It's, this is total guitar. like asshole in the quad playing his gu- acoustic guitar to a chick who's like, oh my God, you play the guitar so good. I love your mullet. I think arguably most cult leaders when it comes to music, they just sound like some douchebag in the quad playing Dave Matthews <laughs> on his acoustic guitar next to the group of guys playing Ultimate Frisbee. Oh, yeah. There's always somebody playing Ultimate Frisbee. That's still a thing? Oh, yeah. Okay. Just making sure. Yeah. Just making sure Ultimate Frisbee's still a thing. Yeah. Checking in. It is great. <laughs> Keep it up. But now, let's talk about Madman in Waco. Yeah. That's a great song. Yes.
I'm not gonna lie, I do kind of like the synth on this, though. Like, I'm kind of getting down to the synth on this. I challenge you to listen to this motherfucking song and not get it stuck in your head for a week. There's a madman living in Waco. There's a madman living in Waco. (laughs) It's great. In case you guys didn't know, there's a madman living in Waco. That's pretty, like, self-exploratory. Like... He's pretty deep. He's a pretty, pretty self-realized guy. He knows he's crazy. Again, he could have done a lot more things with his life than be a (laughs) cult leader, but whatever. I mean, this song is not a half bad synth boosted 80s rock song. It's kind of a ripoff of pop songs on radio at the time. And I think maybe that's what David was going for. It had broad appeal. That entertained his followers and could be used as a tool to lure people in. Yeah, definitely. And the whole rock star religious leader persona makes David look pretty cool to wayward teenagers looking for guidance. Oh, yeah. It's like, come to me, children. Right. I'm the madman in Waco. Right. I mean, it's the same thing that fucking Children of God did when they first started out in the 60s. Right. They were based in California. They They were a group of religious crazy people who would stand on the boardwalk in like venice beach and just sing about their religion to you know anyone any any hippies that were looking for some kind of guidance that's just the way you did things back in the 60s david crush had to get a little bit more creative yeah so he got an airbrush guitar yeah uh that's how you do it it's working it's he did it um, some article I read described his music as Brian Adams with some hints of glam rock, and I think that's pretty oh, accurate. Yeah, yeah. I can totally see that. Yeah. 100%. But honestly, if David Koresh wasn't a sociopathic narcissist, he probably could have been a fairly successful musician. I agree. He's good at playing guitar, and he had a good voice, except for on The Rising Sun, his voice was off key the whole fucking song. Don't Oof. listen to that one. That's that one's not bad. a good one. That's bad. <laughs> the songs he put out were pretty generic, but they were also easily digestible rock. His music could have had mass appeal. Yeah, I you know what. I honestly, Madman and Waco easily. I could see that playing on. I don't know, maybe classic rock channels now, but I could see that you know being like a summer, uh, like a sleeper hit. Yeah. You know those songs that you really get into at the time, and then you forget yeah. about them, but then you'll be listening to a Rewind channel, and they play it, and you're like, oh my god, I forgot about yeah. this song. I yeah. loved this song when it came out. I could see a song like Mad Man and Waco being that. A hundred percent. Yeah. Totally. So that is the story of David Crush and his musical career. I mean, wasn't a bad one. No, and I, I think he put out another album, too, but... I couldn't find that one. The only one I could find was Songs for Grandpa. You know, it's really weird. It's like people don't want to put out the music by cult leaders, so it makes it really know, hard to right? find. I don't get Thank it. Thank God for YouTube. Seriously, though. Otherwise, we would have nothing. We'd be fucked. I would not be able to listen to some sweet jams by fucking David Koresh. Yeah. But actually, the next person I'm going to talk about had a pretty successful musical career. Okay. You might recognize some things, maybe. Ooh. This dude goes by the name of Dwight York. That's one of his... Sergeant York? <laughs> Sergeant Dick? Or Dick Sergeant. Sergeant? Dick Sergeant? Sergeant, Sergeant York? Sergeant York? Same person. 
It's a Wayne's World reference. I feel like we've done that several times. (laughs) So Dwight York, also known as Dr. Malachi Z. York, or just Dr. York. I don't trust anyone with the name Malachi, first of all. (laughs) Why? Because they have your woman outlander. Malachi's always have my women. (laughs) And I fucking hate it. Fucking lay off my women, Malachi. Jesus. Get your own. Get your own woman, Malachi. God. So this dude is probably one of, if not the, most successful cult leader musicians. But naturally, he's more known for his exploits as the leader of the Nuwabian Nation. Ooh. Has nothing to do with Albany, New York, though, does it? No. Nuwabian. Oh, it sounds like New Albion. Nuwabian. 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 I'll just say it like I'm from Brooklyn. From Queens. Nuwabian. Nuwabian. It's a Nuwabian nation. He based his cult teachings on black Muslim groups that grew in popularity in the late 1960s with the black power movement, later abandoning the Muslim part in favor of black supremacy, UFOs, and cryptozoology. Huh. Makes sense. Log- logical. Logical jump. Well, I mean, the UFOs and the cryptozoology, yeah, but... Huh. All right. Let's go with it. Let's just roll. By the 1990s, York and the Nuwabians <laughs> built a... You can't say that while I'm drinking. <laughs> you just can't. Well, don't drink when I'm about to say it. Nuwabians. <clears throat> Nuwabians built a super secret, super secure compound in Georgia called Tamaray. This was pretty much their equivalent of Scientology's gold base in Florida, except Tamaray was modeled after ancient Egypt. But much like David Koresh, Dwight York's reign didn't last long, and much like David Koresh, his downfall was pedophilia. Stop touching children. (laughs) Stop it. God. You don't have to touch children. What is your fucking problem? I don't know. I don't know. Despite Dwight's deep devotion to Islam and the strict rules and gender roles his version of it came with, he was okay bending the rules when it came to music. Because, as he rightly speculated, music was a really good way to spread his message. Like most cult leaders. Yeah. And what genre of music was the most popular and had the widest mass appeal in the late 70s and early 80s? Was it psychedelic rock? Nope. Just regular rock? Nope. Funk? Close. Disco? Yes. What? Yep. Huh. York started a disco group called Passion, and their biggest hit came in 1982 when they released Don't Stop My Love. don't want to but i can't help but snap fingers and yeah it's like it's a little, groove a little, it's a little groove got a nice groove. little funky bass I mean, line i'm not gonna roll up into the bar and put this on the jukebox i kind of want to now i kind of want to too well once we get one to you get everybody one, gets one everybody gets one that's it everybody gets one cult leader song they can play on the jukebox <laughs> that's it but it really is just a plateful of nostalgia laden cheese 
but that only lasts for about four minutes. Then you're treated to a spoken word back and forth where a man basically coerces a woman into unwanted sex. Oh, come on! She only says two words, no and stop. And he follows that with, come on, baby. She's saying the two magic fucking words, and even in this song, asshole can't accept it. Come on! Like, listen to the whole song. I don't want to At some point, because you will get really pissed off. Ugh. Yeah, so, the two fucking, like, the only two words that are clear two, as fucking day. Two magic words that women, that everyone questions if women ever say she fucking says it did in this song. Did you tell him to stop explicitly? Did you? But did you say? Did you say no? Because he's not going to know if you don't say it. Because men are fucking idiots, apparently. Sorry. I'm sorry, guys. I didn't realize how fucking dumb you all were. <laughs> And that a woman pushing you away wasn't enough. Apparently. He was briefly the lead singer of Jackie and the Starlights and another band called The Students, but then created his own record label and released his own music under under the name Dr. York. In 1984, (laughs) he released his first single, Only a Dream. I I feel like the name Dr. York is just not that eye-catching of a name. Also, you're not a doctor. What are you a doctor of? He's not even a doctor? No, he's not a doctor. <laughs> I love the absolute The outrage. indignation? Yes, no, he's not a doctor. He's not a doctor. He's a cult leader. <laughs> Doctors can be cult leaders, too. He's, I'm pretty sure he's not a doctor. must only be a dream because that shit put me to sleep yeah it's way it's way too slow jams it's i like me a good slow jam but that's a that is a that's a snoozer it's also kind of an oxycontin jam it's also an oxymoron oh that the super strict cult leader would be putting out such mainstream and secular music but he said that he only did it in order to gain more followers and get his ideas out into the world. I mean, he's not putting messages in his songs, though, right? He's mostly no. just putting out these songs, hoping people will come and find him and be his fans. And then he can right. say, have I told you about the... What, yeah. What, what? What? I forgot. What exactly is his shtick? Um, black supremacy, oh, basically. Okay. Have I told you about the good word of black supremacy yeah. and cryptoids? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and also UFOs and... I mean, Bigfoot? You might have to read, you might have to just like kind of read the person out to figure out what part. But also by by doing like R&B, funk, and disco, that's marketed mainly towards black people in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, that's true. So he's trying to get them in that way. Yeah. But unsurprisingly, Dwight York is currently serving a 135-year sentence for child molestation. He was charged with over 100 counts of child molestation, and in 2004, he was convicted. So was it just kids that were in the cult? And he's Mm -hmm. like, so bring me your child. Yep. I mean, he pretty much did the same thing that other cult leaders did and was like, oh, marriage means nothing. I can fuck whoever I want. Was he married? 
I think he had many, many, many wives. Oh, okay. Many wives. Many. But interestingly, Dwight's estranged son, Jacob York, became a pretty big name in the music industry. Oh. After breaking away from the New Orleans nation in the early 90s, Jacob took jobs in the music industry with the help of his cousin, Kedar Massenberg, who was already an established record exec and producer. Ooh. And in 1994, Jacob created his own subsidiary record label under Atlantic Records, and that shit took off. Yeah, Atlantic's he's, a big fucking deal. He's responsible for some of the biggest names in hip-hop, including Notorious B.I.G., Lil' Kim, what? Junior Mafia, and Gucci Mane, and created a massive music empire for himself in the wake of his father's incarceration. Huh. He's a huge deal. In the, so, in the hip-hop industry. I guess Silver Linings gave us some really fucking sweet music. Yeah, and I mean, as far as I know, Jacob has absolutely nothing to do with his father. Oh, I'm sure and he condemns it left and right. to do with his father. But, like, their, their whole family really was already in the music industry. And then the cult started and they continued being in the music industry. Mm. And I think a lot of his kids ended up going that way and like denounce the group and everything like that so yeah i mean obviously so he's in jail that group is no longer in any sort of practice oh i'm pretty sure it still is because just recently one of his children got incarcerated for child molestation oh come on because of the group it's like the really sad thing that sucks i get it you know i understand there's a psychology a lot of times to pedophilia child molestation Usually a lot of the people who do it are people who are themselves molested mm-hmm. and it's like just an unhealthy, terrible behavior that they had learned when they were kids. But still, guys, don't touch don't touch kids. It's just not cool. Just don't. Just don't do it. Nobody needs to do that. You will fuck up so many people for the rest of their lives if you touch a child. That is the most domino effect thing ever. Yeah. Just God damn You it. could literally be making a murderer. If you did that. Yeah, so don't do it. Just saying. Just saying. Just throwing that out there. Um, all right, well, I'm going to go to my single one. Unfortunately, <laughs> not a child toucher. Thank God. I'm, ta- I'm taking us off the child toucher road. <laughs> I'm sorry both of mine were child touchers. I think that's actually just kind of a thing. It's, it's like a cult leader a MO. Cults. Yeah. Either you're like a psychotic, serial-killing, bloodlusting sociopath or you just like to touch kids or both. and you're also a bloodlusting sociopath yeah i mean there's there's a lot that goes into cult leaders yeah and again who would have thought so many of them had a lot of music going into them as well well yours especially Ooh, mine. like famous for that yeah again i should have just saved this for a full episode on its own but again maybe we'll do a we can revisit it sometime down the line yeah maybe like bonus or something Alrighty, you know sometimes people don't achieve their dreams they put that energy into a new project and that new project may still be an ambitious one but perhaps not as quite as harmless as the other you, you know who you sound like you're talking about? Hey, I mean, maybe if we let Hitler open a couple art galleries, <laughs> maybe the Jews wouldn't have been targeted. But, like, maybe not. Who knows? Maybe if you just let him into art school. Just let him open. Just have him have one art night. You know? like Just let him be, like, Ringo star on oh Family Guy. Just put his painting on the refrigerator. Oh, where everyone can see it. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? 
There was another man whose entitlement sent him on a bit of a mad killing spree, Mr. Charles Manson, best known for the Tate and LaBianca murders of 1969. I kind of hoped you had said Taint instead of Tate. <laughs> but her name is Sherry. <laughs> I digress. I digress. The general public believes these were senseless, random murders perpetuated by a crazy man who heard messages and lyrics that weren't there. And while there is a bit of truth in that, what if I told you that most of this story springs from a scorned musician that was denied of his shot and felt the need for revenge? I would believe you. Yeah. Well, you also know a lot about Manson. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Before we go spouting the Bugliosi theory that Manson was some criminal mastermind. No. What? Do people think that? Uh, Oh, Vincent Bugliosi, the um, district attorney, uh, not the district attorney. I'm sorry. The prosecutor for that case. Uh Uh-huh. He wrote the book Helter Skelter, which I will say, Helter Skelter... I am not sure exactly what my first true crime was, but Helter Skelter was definitely my first true crime book, and I read it in high school because I thought I was grabbing a book that might talk about the Beatles a lot because in high school, I really got into the Beatles. Oh, because it's titled Helter, Helter Skelter. Skelter. And I started Oh, you were wrong. It. Ooh, ooh, boy, was I wrong. Bitch, there you are, were wrong. There are pictures of the murder scene with the bodies. Oh. Yeah, in the book, I was like 16, 17. Yeah, this isn't about rough. Paul McCartney. No, there was there was really nothing about the Beatles in it. Yet was still fascinated by it and read it and did a book I mean, report on too. it. And I'm pretty sure my English teacher was like, "Girl, you okay though? <laughs> Girl, you alright?" But he believed that Manson, some criminal mastermind, that had this amazing plan. I mean, he was the one who came up with the helter skelter theories and and just it's and. and- it's not that deep, it's bro. A lot. It really isn't that it's deep. It's not that deep. But I'm going to just briefly touch upon a little bit of his past, you know, see what kind of life could result in such a horrific crime. Hold up, though. There is an abundance of podcasts that can tell you all about his childhood so and the events that led him to a lifetime of crime and the psychological traits that he possesses as a cult leader, blah, blah, blah. Don't expect to hear all that stuff here. Go listen to those podcasts. Yeah. Also, I have no intention of going through the gory details of the murders. Again, podcasts for that. Yeah. That's, you're not going to get it here. Mostly talking about music shit here. But a quick Reader's Digest of Manson's childhood. Born in 19, 1934 to a young unwed mother whose baby daddy was a con artist that ran off on her when he heard she was prego. Desperately trying to provide father figures for her son, Manson's mom was clearly a hot mess who would leave her son with babysitters when going out drinking and committing petty crimes and then eventually landed her in jail, leaving Charles with his grandparents. Sounds a lot like David Koresh's childhood, Hmm. TBH. Sounds like a lot of cult leaders' childhoods, Mm -hmm. TBH. And just a little side note, Manson's grandparents also sucked at the parentage things. So he didn't have um, many chances here. I mean, just look at their daughter. Yeah, exactly. Woof. So this, of course, leads Manson to becoming a juvenile delinquent in his own right, landing him in a school for troubled boys and then, of course, to jail as he got older. Spoiler alert, he's going to spend a good chunk of his life in and out of jail, where, frankly, he thrives best. Some people just know where they belong. And Manson knew he belonged in jail. (laughs) And he knew his people. 
He did know his people. And they were jail people. (laughs) He knew jail people. (laughs) And he liked them. But in fact, it was in prison where he learned to play the guitar. One of the few innocent hobbies he had in life. He loved music, especially the psychedelic rock of the 60s, and idolized bands like the Beatles. Wait, didn't Johnny Cash always tell people that he learned how to play guitar in jail? Wasn't that like one of the rumors that he or somebody started to make it seem like he had been to jail when he wrote Folsom Prison Blues? I don't remember ever seeing that or reading that really but yeah that was like a thing because like he wanted people to think that he was kind of badass so when he wrote Folsom Prison Blues he never really confirmed or denied he was yeah, ever in I jail wonder if some, that was a situation where someone else made up the story right and he just never corrected right, it. right I think it was more along that those lines it was like a, a little rumor he wasn't gonna tell someone I haven't been to jail right but he also wasn't gonna go spouting it either right but Manson legit did learn guitar in jail because he spent, again, a lot of his life in jail. He probably learned most things in jail. Ooh, he did, though. Yeah. Anyway, he was so inspired that after getting released from jail, he took this as his chance to make a name for himself and went to California to become a musician. Aww. Upon arriving in California, Manson began to weave a large web of people who would help Manson achieve his goals one way or another. At first, he was mostly begging and busking to make ends meet, but that changed when he met Mary Brennan, who let him stay with her, and with that, he had a base of operations. Mm. This is when Manson began to use his charm, well, and drugs, to attract (laughs) women to his side. They moved in with him into Mary's apartment, and he slowly began to build this peace-loving, reincarnated Jesus guru image of himself. Charles may have been a small, gross-looking dude, but he had the charisma necessary for all cult leaders to attract followers. He was like skinny Jesus. He was also very dirty. Yeah. He, he looked like he smelled. do the shower thing, I don't think. Yeah. Too often. And it looked like his he probably had dreads in his beard. I think Manson could have been a relatively attractive dude. Yeah. Had he learned to bathe and groom properly. And didn't have the crazy eyes. Oh, I mean, those aren't going to help him out. <laughs> but he could have worked with it. <laughs> could have been like, my eyes are just so big and beautiful, aren't they? I mean, it worked on some women. <laughs> Let's be honest. But he also was like, what, five, five, one. He was not a tall oh, man. Was he really that oh, he short? Was stupid short. I thought I he think... was at least five five. No, I'm pretty sure he was at best five two. Oh, I've been giving him the benefit of the doubt this whole time. You know what He's everybody so else, lady? Oh, oh, waka waka. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he began to preach his message of love, telling all to release themselves of material possessions and use drugs like acid to lull people into a different state of consciousness, making them easier to manipulate. He convinced many, many of them that their families would never love them the way he did, and all you needed to be accepted was just love cared in your heart, man. All you need is love. Man. Man. That's all you need, man. He really did talk like that. He very much was that stereotypical 60s burnout hippie who just would walk around and say, Hey, man. You don't need that van. You don't need all this stuff. I'll take it off your hands, you man. Need... Well, if you recall the story where he got called out once because he was preaching about how you don't need material possessions. And someone said, well, what about that bus with all your shit in it? And he said, 
here's the keys, man. You go ahead and take it. And he took it. It's just the canvas for my Psalm 45 airbrush scene. <laughs> Song of but Solomon, man. One, man. No, what? Bought it off of a guy named David. <laughs> oh my Fucking <gosh>. sucker. <laughs> man. Well, I think at this point, David Crush would have been born. Yeah, he was. David Crush was not no. around for Manson's yeah. exploits. Oh my God. I don't even think he was born yet. I think David Crush was born. No, he was. I don't he really died. Know. You know, it doesn't matter. I don't know. No, he, was, he was 33 in 1993. So he was born in 1960. Okay, you're, you're much better at math than I am. Cool. <laughs> Good to know. With the help of the women and the drugs, he attracted some men to his group as well. This way he could have the muscle he needed to protect himself, but also that sweet pussy to keep him warm at night. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, that sweet pussy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and Oh, for, no. Oh, I no. will say for the most part, it sounds like it was consensual. It was just a lot of lost children who just didn't know what they were doing it's a lot of brainwashed lost children yeah who are just mesmerized by this weird leprechaun with a beard <laughs> that were just like well got nowhere else to go and this guy's got drugs so yeah. again the 60s were that love and hippie time yeah, yeah. It, it it was really just a lot of kids that wanted drugs they were hooked on on the weed they and wanted, they, they wanted the weeds. And they just didn't like their parents, so they just parents found the lame. weird guy in the desert with an airbrushed fan. Yeah, if, so, if anything's going to piss your parents off, it's Charles Manson. Yeah. Even before the murders. Ultimate rebellion. There were parents that would hunt him down and find him. But apparently Man- Manson just had this charisma where he would be like, come on in, man, let's just talk about it. Yeah, you can go if you want. I mean, I'm not going to hold her here. She doesn't want to be here. But just know I'm going to fucking murder you. <laughs> I mean, like, eventually. Eventually. We're about, like, we're about, like, two years away from that, but it's totally going to happen. <laughs> totally Just happening. so you know. Just yeah. want you to be prepared. Well, I- Roll up in my airbrushed van. <laughs> he didn't have an airbrushed van. Guns But in my mind, he does. I just feel like... With like David Koresh, sophisticated for him. David Koresh in the passenger seat no. fucking wailing. No, because... Oh, my God. Again. This is the best mental image. Oh, so good. <laughs> but, like, Charles Manson strikes me as that guy who doesn't have his own ride. Oh, no. He needs you to drive him everywhere. Yeah. yeah. He, also, he can't reach the pedals, so. Oh, my God, because he's too he's short. Too tiny. tiny. He's got to sit on the phone books to see over the steering wheel, and then you don't. you can't reach the pedals. He can't drive an airbrush van. He can't drive anything. Physically, we've determined he this He can drive happen. a power wheels, and that's Ooh, about it. He can drive a smart car. Oh, yeah, maybe. There you go. Perfect for him. Anyway, like their leader, Charlie, many members of the Manson family had their own charm to them and could attract people into the group, including those of influence, most notably... Dennis Wilson, drummer of the Beach Boys. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that he was part of the Manson family for like a hot second. Wish they all could be Manson family girls. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. No, you don't. They don't shower. And you and, and as I get into this, you will definitely not want to fuck a Manson girl. Anyway, now bear with me because Dennis Wilson is kind of his own little side story in this here. So in 1961, 
Dennis, along with his brothers Brian and Carl, as well as cousin Mike Love and friend Al Jardine, started their own rock band called the Beach Boys. They stood out with their elaborate harmonies and sunny surf rock sound. They were quite popular, but it was with 1964's Pet Sounds that truly gave them the street cred they desired. This is referred to as one of the greatest albums of all time. You see it it on, like, top five, top ten lists constantly. It was a masterful piece of musical work. It really is. It's a great album. You should definitely try to go listen to it. It's great. It's not just catchy beach songs. Yeah, and this was the first time they really tried to get deeper than just this, catchy beach this songs. This was very experimental for Beach Boys and for just music oh, yeah. at that time. Definitely. So. Well, however, with fame sometimes comes anxiety. And by 1968, Brian had given up nearly all songwriting duties to his bandmates because he just couldn't handle the pressure anymore. Brian Wilson would be a really good podcast oh, episode. We will 100% like, just, cover Brian Wilson. Just Brian Wilson. To Don't be honest, <laughs> yeah. You could cover most of the Beach Boys in an episode. They are all kind they could, of fascinating. Well, they could all have their own episode. Mike Love is yeah. a, also a fascinating person. So Honestly, like, and I'll continue to get through into it, but Dennis Wilson, he has an interesting story just by this alone. Yeah. So this even meant Dennis had to step up a little bit for songwriting. Now, this would prove a bit of a challenge because, quite frankly, he wasn't the talented musician that his brothers were. Story goes that he wasn't even supposed to be in the band. You're not even supposed to be here! <laughs> Mrs. Wilson told her son Brian to give her brother a, his brother a spot. And so Dennis was told to learn his ass some drums. Well, yeah, there- Can you picture that? Your mom walks in, let your brother be in the band! <laughs> mom... He fucking sucks. He's not playing. <laughs> Brian, just give him something to do. I just feel bad for him. This is not what anyone in the fucking Wilson family sounds like. like I am destroying them. His, and I'm sorry. Uh, Brian and Dennis's father was their manager and like creative director for a really oh, long yeah. time. And he was super, super strict. And I'm sure. I mean, kind if you of an asshole. At, if you look at early pictures of them, like the way they had to all dress. Yeah. Uh, it was very uniform. It was all their dad. You can also see, I feel like you can see it in their faces that they're kind of forced to be there. Like they're kind boy. of prisoners. A little and bit. And they're being forced to perform so like doing, monkeys. I bet doing pet sounds was like a release for them. And then they're like, Brian was like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> I'm Ugh. going to just lose my mind on this record. And he kind of did. He kind of did. He kind of did. Like literally lost his mind with that album. Well, then. For his time in the Beach Boys, there was definite growth, but overall Dennis wasn't much to write home about. It's actually said that some of his takes were so bad that Brian had to have session drummers come in to re-record. I mean, he's no John Stamos. <laughs> but who is? He was no Jesse and the Rippers. <laughs> but who is? Only John Stamos. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the thing Dennis was really good at? Being a rock star. He was the only one in the surf rock band that actually surfed. He was their credibility. He was. He was really into partying. He went hard all the time. And he was the pretty boy. So I want you to keep all of this in the back of your head as I go forward in this story. <laughs> this is the image of Dennis Wilson that you need to have. It was in 1968 that not only did the Beach Boys release their album Friends to mix reviews, 
But it was also when Dennis saw two hot chicks hitchhiking on Sunset Boulevard and figured, might as well see where this goes. Hot chicks? Attractive ladies. No, they were attractive. Okay. There were some attractive ladies. He picked them up, brought them home with him, and only one could assume that there was some drugs and some sex happening, and then he brought them on home to the Manson family. Oh, he brought him back home. He brought him back. He was a gentleman. Yeah. He's like, I'll take you to my place. We'll do some drugs. We'll bone. And I'll drive you back home. Some nice guy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Dennis Wilson. Nice guy. That's what nice guys do. I guess. Look, at this point, I don't have really high standards anymore. (laughs) I've given up. What is life? What what are nice guys? (laughs) K-life. Sure. But Manson did have some attractive... Some of the Manson girls were pretty hot, actually. Mm. They were they were kind of the less sociopathic ones. They were kind of just there as, like, eye candy. The only one I remember who I can, like, whose face I can pull up into my head is uh, Squeaky Frome. Oh, yeah. And, oh... <laughs> she was mousy. She was mousy. And I think that was... Like, that was the time, though, guys were into that. Okay. I don't know. I wasn't around. I wasn't around either. I just... I, I read a lot about this stuff. <laughs> So the next day, when he came home from a recording session, Dennis found none other than Charles Manson in his driveway. Understandably nervous, he asked Charlie if he was going to hurt him. And as a response... Did Charles Manson have, like, a reputation at this point? Well, he just sees this strange, short, dirty man standing in his driveway. With crazy eyes standing in his driveway. Probably on LSD. Yeah, and he's like, are you going to hurt me? Oh, okay. And as a response, Charles walks up to Dennis... And then gets on the ground to kiss his feet. And they went inside huh. after that, where there were 12 of Manson's girls waiting for them. Again, presumably the sex happened. <laughs> the sex. The sex and the drugs happened. <laughs> capital T, capital S, capital D. <laughs> the sex drugs. The TSD. The, the sex drugs. <laughs> That's like, you switch around, it's just STDs. Ooh. Which we'll get to that. Yeah. From here, a close relationship developed between Dennis and the Manson family. And for all intents and purposes, he was a member of the Manson family. Yeah. Most of them lived in his house and he paid for everything. Food, clothes, damages on a crash car, and most impressive of all, a large medical bill to treat nearly the whole family for a pretty nasty case of gonorrhea. Awesome. Everyone had the clap. (laughs) It was super good times. They basically never used to treat it, but it was too painful to have sex, so they had to treat it. You know what? Dennis, avoid the clap. Yeah. From Jimmy Dugan. (laughs) (laughs) But at the end of the day, Dennis liked Charlie. He thought he had a lot of insightful wisdom, wrote some interesting lyrics, and could not only play guitar decently, but even taught Dennis a little. So there was a strange bond that developed. And hold up. I do want to take this moment to mention Dennis was going through a messy divorce at the time and we all make poor judgment calls during times of stress. So let's, okay. let's throw that out there. And granted at this point, Charles Manson was presumably not the psychotic right. murderer, whatever. He was fringy. He was weird. He was an odd duck, but yeah. no one thought he was necessarily a violent dude. Right. Manson and Dennis emboldened each other. Dennis felt his music was was evolving, and Manson was meeting bigwigs in the industry. Some were fans of him, and others not so much. <laughs> Dennis's cousin, Mike Love, thought Charlie was pretty strange. He met him at a party, 
Everybody was dropping acid except for Mike and his friend. Mm-hmm. And it was naked. And Mike Love just said, this is really strange. I don't know about this. <laughs> but fellow rocker Neil Young really liked Charlie. Thought his songs of were pretty fascinating. Neil Young and loved he, Charles Manson. He wanted to help him get a record deal. It's because they fucking look exactly alike. No, that's not nice to Neil Young. No, Neil Young didn't have a beard. Never mind. Didn't he? I think he just had the big old mutton chops. He had, I don't think he had a beard until the 70s. Maybe. I don't know. He had. I would just remember him with big old mutton chops. But, but keep on course, rocking in the free world. But of course Neil Young liked Charles Manson. Oh. Well, he did. <laughs> well, he did. He did. All right. Now, here's where I want you to take that picture of Dennis Wilson that I painted for you. And imagine when he goes up to his bandmates and says, Hey, I met this cool guy named Charles Manson. He's got some pretty far out ideas for songs. We should bring him in. Oh, and he refers to him as the wizard. Are you fucking serious? I am not. Or I am. I am fucking serious, actually. Met this guy named Charles. He's, he, he's he the goes wizard, by man. the wizard. No, he doesn't. Just Dennis started calling him the wizard. I met the wizard and uh, he's got some far out ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight yeah, face. You can't. So, uh, yeah. The boys decided to mollify their brother and invite Manson to a recording session. Despite the initial excitement at the beginning, things quickly went sour. I can only imagine this meeting. I am picturing the Beach Boys, like, relatively, you know, run-of-the-mill dudes. Yeah. A little surfery. Just... In a recording studio, and then just a rabid raccoon comes into the studio and and just fucking tears him apart and is talking a mile a minute. His eyeballs are bugging out of his skull. But it's not like like a cute raccoon. No, it's a scary raccoon. It's not a cute one. It is a definitively rabid raccoon. 100%. Like, Foaming at the mouth a little bit. Yeah. Because he's so fucking excited. And he's real fucking scrawny. He's, he's a starved rabies. He's a starved and rabid raccoon just yeah. losing his mind in that studio with the beach boys. So accurate, I feel like. <laughs> because probably like the raccoon, I'll imagine, Charles Manson doesn't like being told what to do. Yeah. I also for some reason continuously picture Charles Manson with a massively untreated case of ADHD. Oh, I'm sure. I have no doubt that yeah. he definitely had probably somewhere on the spectrum. Probably yeah. got ADHD. Plus, probably got like a ton of. I mean, psychotic. He definitely has ODD. Yeah. Plus, he he's on drugs all the yeah. time, and so. he's on acid and on all the time. So, so. He's, he basically is a human rabid raccoon. He really was. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's so accurate. All right. Well, most everybody gets that when someone's in the studio recording. There's usually a producer there to kind of keep everybody in line, keep everybody in check, get the best sound that they can. And that's going to also entail maybe the guy might be a bit overbearing sometimes. He's going to at least have to give you some constructive criticism. Well, that's his job, to push you to places that you're probably not really comfortable with to get the sound you you need to get. Right. He's going to say that wasn't good. Start over again. Sometimes they're not so nice about it. Right. That's their fucking job. Right. Well, guess who doesn't like that? <laughs> I don't know. Manson didn't want anyone messing with his music. He liked the way it sounded and found any changes as an insult. 
It was clear he wasn't going to be able to hang in the music world if he's pulling out his knife on everyone in the room during a session. Because that's how the session ended. He pulled out his knife and was going to cut everyone. Hey, Dennis. Because he's a rabid raccoon. (laughs) With a knife. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Dennis. Your friend is... uh... He's a guy. He's kind of weird. And he's he's never allowed back here again. Don't ever invite him back here. No. If you ever let him back here, we will we will kick you out of the band. Yeah. We might Please have Please and to. thank you. <laughs> From there, Dennis only became more unnerved by Manson. The honeymoon period was over, and he was just seeing more and more violent outbursts from this guy who he thought only believed in love and peace. And on top of that, the family was costing Dennis a ton of his money and sanity. So by the fall of 1968, Dennis did the only thing he could think to do. Ghost the Manson family. He ghosted them? Oh, yeah. He chose (laughs) not to renew his lease on the house and quietly moved out, which left the family to get kicked out by the authorities. That's amazing. Right? Dennis Wilson is my hero. He He ghosted the Manson Manson family. (laughs) He was like... I've made a terrible mistake. I've made a huge mistake. And he's like... He fucking Joe Bluth oh, that shit yeah, he all did. over the place. Yeah, he did. But the real final nail in the coffin came when the Beach Boys asked Manson if they could record one of his songs, Cease to Exist. He gave them, them his blessing on the condition they didn't change the song. So they released the song as is and everything was fine. What? Your world. Come on, you can be I'm your kind Oh, your kind I can see Walk on, walk on I love you, pretty girl No, no, wait, that's (laughs) not right. Oh, they totally changed it. From the lyrics to the song itself, renaming it Never Learn Not to Love. And on top of that, they didn't credit Manson for the song. Dennis (laughs) is listed as the sole writer on the album. He had a fairly reasonable explanation for this. The family owed him over $100,000 for all the damage they caused. And that's the 1960s money. Yeah, so this was how he was getting it back. Um, fair enough. Charlie's way of dealing with this was an indirect threat in the form of giving Dennis a bullet. He told Wilson that every time he looks at it, he should think about how nice it is that he and his kids are safe. Now, apparently from here, they say Dennis proceeded to beat the ever-loving shit out of Manson. (laughs) And that was that on their relationship. So he gave him like a literal bullet? Yeah. That's that's a very um, Brian Jonestown massacre thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, like, was, here's a bullet. Yeah. Has you, I wrote your name on Except it. Brian's Brian uh, Jonestown massacre wasn't like as badass as Charles Manson oh. about it. Oh no, they weren't rabid raccoons. No, they just did a lot of drugs and made mediocre music. Yeah, they weren't the Dandy Warhols. I'll tell you that Ugh. much. 
Sure weren't. Well, good news for Manson. The Beach Boys were not his only opportunity to get that coveted record deal. Oh, boy. And this is where we can kind of start to see connections to the murders. One of the main players that Dennis introduced Charlie to was a record producer by the name of Terry Melcher. Terry worked with the Beach Boys, the Birds, Paul Revere and the Raiders, and a few other acts. In the 60s, he was pretty well known, not just for his work, but also for being the only son of Doris Day. Despite the fallout with Dennis, Melcher still had an interest in signing Manson to some kind of contract and maybe even doing some kind of documentary featuring him and the family for some kind of film about the hippie movement of the time. Terry makes the appointment to hear what Manson had to offer musically and travels to their compound for the occasion. Mm-hmm. On the big day, Charlie had the whole thing ready to go and planned out, but of course, it was just trouble from the beginning. Of course, the equipment isn't working, nothing was going right, everything was a shambles, Terry was totally unimpressed, and Charlie could see that, but on top of all of this, they were living in a place called Spawn Ranch which was a former TV movie set for Westerns. And that day, an extra who was wandering around the ranch, very drunk, I might add, irked Charlie in just the right way to provoke a fight. And it was with that that Terry said, no, I'm good. I'm walking away from this hot mess of a situation. Good choice. Yes. And honestly, as interesting as some may find Manson's music, it really isn't good. No. You know, there's a lot of people who try to make an argument like, oh, no, it's really deep. You just don't get it. It's not. It really isn't. It's psychotic ramblings. There isn't any substance. With bad guitar playing. Yeah, there isn't any substance. It's decent at best. And again, it's like we were talking about earlier, that kid on the quad playing some fucking song on his guitar. Yeah. Did he say use your illusion in there? Something about illusion, yeah. I'm sure. I have no doubt that Axl Rose was highly influenced by Charles Manson. They covered a Charles Manson song. Yeah, they cover um, Look at Your your Game game Girl girl on on, uh, Appetite for Spaghetti. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it is. That's the album. Actually, you know what that song reminds me of? That reminds me of being in music class in elementary oh school, <laughs> and the teacher gives every student a different yes, instrument and just says, just bang on it, just whistle it, whatever. You know that Everybody teacher at the brought time. an entire bottle of Aleve and left with it empty that day, <laughs> because there's no fucking way. Yeah, no, those those were hard times at elementary school for that, for a music teacher. Yeah, that, that music teacher. Oh, woof. Hard out here for a music teacher. <laughs> it is hard out here for a music teacher. Oh, man. Well, at this point, it shouldn't come as any surprise to anyone when I tell you that, once again, Manson felt wronged. The whole family said that Terry went back on a promise and was never actually agreed upon, so I don't know why they felt like that, but okay. Wah. Sure. Wah. And the thing is, 
Terry did feel really uneasy about Manson. He had a bad feeling. And he was Everyone actually... Everyone feels uneasy about well, Charles Manson. <laughs> yeah. Just, if you don't feel uneasy about Charles Manson... Something's wrong with you. You probably yeah. belong in the Manson family. You're probably in the Manson yeah, family. exactly. Although there were even members of the Manson family that felt uneasy and could not leave, so... Yeah. There's that. But he... Terry was very close to his mother, and I guess he was telling her about him, and she said, you know, you should move. <laughs> you should good probably move. advice from Terry's mom. Yeah, with that, he decided to sell his Cielo Drive home to Roman Polanski and his wife, uh, Sharon Tate. Oh, uh, fuck. Yeah. So this is how the connections start to weave in a little bit. Hmm. I, th- I always thought that, or maybe I'm thinking of a different murder... I thought that the Manson family got the houses mixed up. So what basically happened was at some point in 1969, I want to say it was maybe June, sometime in the spring, perhaps, Manson remembered where Terry lived because Dennis had once dropped Terry off with Charlie in the car. Gotcha. So Charlie goes to the Cielo Drive house Uh expecting to find Terry. Uh Uh-huh. Terry's not there, but there's a photographer photographing this pregnant, beautiful blonde woman, a.k.a. Sharon Tate. Right. So he's trying to get a hold of, like, he's like, where's Terry Melcher? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And the woman comes out and she's all creeped out. She's like, who the fuck is this leprechaun man? Leprechaun <laughs> raccoon man. And then he goes into the um the pool house to talk to whoever was living in there at the time. And the guy told him, no, Terry moved and whatever. Uh-huh. So... Manson, I think, knew Terry moved and just kind of remembered, like, a bunch of fucking... Just didn't give a shit. ...Hollywood, high, hoity-toity types live there. And it eventually fits into his narrative of, you know, this upper class that needed to go. Right. Side note, Ghost Hunters did an investigation of that house, and they found some fucked up shit. Well, of course you are, because you know what happened in that house. Well, yeah, but they're... Remember, they're there to disprove, not approve. <laughs> Shout out, Ghost Hunters. I'm going to make you watch that episode. All right. I will totally watch it. It's like, uh, there's just some things that they find that it's like, oh, that's fucking creepy. Well, in general, the story's spooky as fuck, so right. it, it should give you the heebie-jeebies regardless. Yeah. So let's get into really... How Manson started to get super influenced into, you know what? I've been wronged. I'm listening to this music. I'm starting to get dark. 1968, later on in the year, Charles Manson was handed a pretty sweet self-titled album from the Beatles, a.k.a. The White Album. Ah. It immediately became his favorite record, and it played on constant rotation. And quickly he began to hear things in the song that others weren't. He was listening to it so much, analyzing the words back and forth. He was just hearing and creating all of these scenarios that he thought were in the songs. Long before this album, however, he had been spouting prophecies of a coming race war where the blacks would rise up, kill the establishment and those surviving ideally his family would come out of hiding to kill the blacks and start anew and now he was hearing instructions on how to make this a reality in the song helter skelter of all the songs on the white album just about a slide guys yeah it's literally an amusement ride yeah it's just about a slide that is what a helter skelter is which is amazing and i want one 
They look really fun. They look like a fun time, (laughs) to say the least. Yeah. When if you had listened to our first episodes about the White Album, congratulations, you know about most of the specific messages that Manson heard. Mm -hmm. But for the rest of you, some key points to interpret are Blackbird is a song telling the people of color to rise up and kill the pigs. Which brings us to the song Piggies that encourages the annihilation of the white establishment. The song Honey Pie was confirming to Manson that he is in fact the chosen one. And I Will told him to continue to spread the message of Jesus Christ. He took the song Sexy Sadie and renamed one of his best girls, Susan Atkins, Sadie. He found something in everything, really. Yeah. He, he again, he listens to this album so much. And it just goes to show you the power of your own brain, how you can hear something and be like, nah, this is what they're telling me, man. Also, LSD. LSD had probably <laughs> had a lot to do with I it. I think it had a lot to do with yeah. it. Yeah. But it's just like you, your brain wants you to hear something and make sense of it, just like it wants you to see something and make sense of it. Right. That's why we always think we see faces in things because that is what your brain is trained to recognize. Right. And it it automatically needs to do that. So yours are going to do that too. Yeah, that makes sense. To top it off, Manson's brand of cult was a bit of Christianity and a bit of Eastern religion. He didn't know what the fuck he was doing. Yeah, it was really cherry-picked to perfection. Yeah. He called himself the second coming of Jesus, but then also would practice a lot of you know, um, Hindu things and Eastern religion practices and the meditation and the yoga. Yeah. So he really mixed his stuff real good. It was really easy for him to come out with Bible references in nearly every song on the album. I didn't want to go into it because holy shit. But if you look it up, Manson finds a Bible verse in pretty much every song on the White Album. I just find it fascinating that he could actually just retain all of these Bible verses. Right? Like, that in and of itself is pretty amazing. Yeah. Because I would think he would have done so many drugs that his brain would have been fried, but maybe that one little nugget of brain <laughs> matter that retains all of the Bible verses well, just never got affected. Love the Bible, and he had, if, to my knowledge, he had read it through and through and had it on, you know, yeah, it's on just, the compound. So I'm pretty sure, like, it was just one of those things... If anything, he might have been listening to music, looking through the Bible at the same time, and like, yep, I hear that, yeah. I hear that. Like, I, he's such a fucking weird guy yeah. that I just wouldn't think the Bible would be something he would go to. Yeah. You Bible know? was totally his thing. So weird. Yeah. And of course, his favorite was Revelations, which totally checks out. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I get it. All right. So, using this and using the album... When the family would commit an act of murder, they would usually use that as an opportunity to spread the potential helter-skelter by writing words on the walls in the blood of their victims and making Black Panther symbols. Except they spelled it helter-skelter, because they're dumb. (laughs) Helter-skelter? I don't think I really need to say it, but the Beatles were clearly horrified when the news came out that Manson was inspired by their work. They really couldn't fathom how he could hear those songs and take them so very... Very wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Even Ringo Starr said he kind of, he, he knew Sharon Tate, so he was really upset when she died. And then discovers, Poor like... Ringo. Fucking... Ringo's the best. <laughs> All right. So let's review. Yeah. Manson thinks he's a super talented musician. 
But those in the music industry are saying, it's going to be a no from me, dog. <laughs> they really Randy Jackson They him. really Randy Jackson did. Yeah. Some of them, even Simon, what's his Cowled face? him. Then? Whatever. Even though the dude who wronged him moved, Charlie knows that there's more of the bourgeois living there who have wronged him by association. Oh, sure. And on top of that, he has literally smoked himself stupid <laughs> and is hearing secret messages and songs by four dudes living on the other side of the globe. Like, <laughs> so at this point, everything has cultivated into this, I need to kill people. Because yes, he is crazy. Yes, he's on drugs. But he's been wronged. I mean, mm -hmm. he views it as being wronged. Right. And he blames these beautiful people in Hollywood and especially because in the music industry. Apparently, they had a direct hand they're in all They're all laughing this. at him. Yeah, they're all laughing at you. And we can't forget about the mob mentality on this either. So Manson spent so much time cultivating and manipulating the minds of his followers that not only do they believe everything he says, they'll do anything they can to win his favor and keep it. Everyone believed in Helter Skelter, and quite frankly, it could have been anyone who initially suggested to drive to Cielo Drive that night to create a real scene of destruction. To use that as a catalyst to frame the black community, start the race war, because apparently black people were quote-unquote too dumb... Then everyone gets high on this bloodlust and just wants to go out and do it again. Well, I'm sorry, but I personally think that the black supremacist cult movement made a better cult than you did. I, they, they did. I mean, they didn't. It was at least better. They had a massive compound Ooh, you know with what? pyramids you know and what? a sphinx. You know what, though? Manson didn't touch kids. Checkmate. <laughs> win this? I win this round? But he... No, because he killed people, too. Didn't touch kids. Ooh, you know what? That's a, that is a poll. This is a fight to the death. Uh, literally. Yeah. Well, mm. I mean, mm. Manson mm. died first, so. He did. <laughs> there are a lot of factors that play into this unimaginable series of events. But I feel like a lot of people gloss over the music aspect of it. The music industry is a tough place. Even those who do make it still have their series of struggles. And if you don't have a thick enough skin to take the heat, the best option is to walk away. And he had so many connections. So many. And he fucked up all of them. Every single one. Every single one. So, come on, man. But he didn't see it that way. He saw it as everyone against him. Because yeah. that's where the psychology comes in that I'm not going to get into. But, you know, narcissism disorder and things right. like that. It's never his fault. Right. It was everybody else against him. Yeah. And it just didn't help that Manson didn't have a thick skin. You know, his ego was large and he's, it was fragile. He's too tiny to have thick skin. Well, he could have thick skin, just not long I'm, bones. He was just a fragile little guy. He was a fragile little guy. But we see this in a lot of cult leaders. You know, they're really actually quite delicate. Yeah. But they try to mask it with this, like, well, I'm a tough motherfucker. Except that I've made people think I'm a tough motherfucker, so they do my work for me. Yeah. And every time somebody slights me, or it's every time there is a perceived slight, I am going to go one step further to prove to you how fucking hardcore I am. Exactly. Every so, single cult leader is like the same exact way. Yeah. It's, when you hear one Serious, cult story, you hear them all. And serial killers, too. They're the same way. Well, a lot of them a are lot anyway. Of them. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit more of a variety, I feel like. 
Yeah, I mean, there's different levels of serial yeah, killers. Kind of, right. But cult leaders are, it's it's all the same thing. It's the yeah. same old story every single time. Seriously. And apparently they're all musicians. Mm-hmm. Well, on top of that, too, you know, music does have the power to inspire and influence. A lot of musicians, upon being asked about the meaning of their songs, will just tell you, well, it's whatever you want it to be. And, well, Manson surely made the White Album into what he wanted it to be. Sure did. Sure did. That's, of course, not to paint any of these artists in a bad light. I mean, they never had any intention of telling a clearly unhinged man to kill innocent people. I am sure the Beach Boys had really no idea. Yeah, no one did. And... But it, it does really make you think, like, what what might people choose to do with the content you put out there? Right. You know, I mean, it's not even just with the Manson stuff. There's a lot of artists and celebrities and others who have been attributed to psychos doing insane shit. Right. And it's it's kind of the same thing as with Dwight York. His music was vastly different than what he was teaching behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. So he was using music as a way to get more fans and more followers. Right. And I'm sure if if some person just heard one of those songs on the radio and was like, oh, this is really great. This is groovy. I wonder who this is. They're not thinking, oh, oh. shit, it's a fucking crazy ass cult leader. But then doesn't that really make you think, too, about the people who are musicians? There are definitely people who have made it who you look at and think, if things went slightly different, you'd be the leader of a cult and or serial killer. Well, there is certainly, I think, a level of narcissism to a lot of the bigger name um, musicians like Axl Rose, for instance. Yeah. I mean, if things were slightly different for Axl Rose, if he had gotten like a head injury when he was a kid or something, things could have gone vastly different for his life. Yeah, that primordial soup of sociopathy, I guess, was, it was, it was like boiling strong for him. A brain, a TBI, uh, animal torture, and something yeah. else. It was like the trifecta. If you had the trifecta, then you're probably going to be either a, a cult leader, serial killer, or a celebrity, or or a musician, or yeah. a lead singer in a rock band. Yeah, probably. One or the other. Yeah. I think yeah. he was missing the head injury. Yep. I feel really bad for Dennis Wilson because, like we were just saying, the Beach Boys didn't know. He didn't know. Beatles I, didn't know. Terry Melcher didn't know. No one knew. Yeah. I Everybody think- looked at Manson like he was this harmless guy. And so when all of this went down... Everyone was shook, not just because nothing like this had ever happened before and that it really destroyed the summer of love and the hippie movement. Yeah. But there were a lot of people who were involved in his life and it kind of destroyed them a little. And starting in the 1970s, Dennis began to have a very serious alcohol and drug problem that never left him for the rest of his life. And he had a very tragic death. I think some people unfairly demonize him because oh, of his association. Yeah, with and I don't Manson. think that's fair at all. I think no, he was just some like guy. He got out of it. He knew that it was a problem. Yeah, and the he minute got he saw it. it was a problem, he said, "I'm ghosting." He did the, the Manson right thing family. and fucking ghosted them, bitches. Like seriously, the best thing you could do is ghost the cult. Yeah, seriously, and he ghost did, him. and good for him. But unfortunately. A lot of people associate Dennis Wilson with the Manson family, even sometimes more so than the Beach Boys. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not fair. I actually, I didn't, 
recognize him for his musical contributions instead of the fact that he hung out with the Manson family for a little bit. Yeah. Which... He fucking paid for their medical bills. Yeah. That's how nice of a guy he was. Well, because apparently sex was just way too painful otherwise. Hey, Oof. It burns. Well, and even on top of, like, all of this, all of the inspiration that Manson had for music, a lot of people did like his music, like I said. And in the 70s, I believe, when he was in jail, or maybe it was the 80s, I don't remember off the top of my head now... He did release an album, or someone released an album for him. It called Lie. It just took all, they just took all of his songs and released them. But they, he told him that he could keep, it was, uh, Graham Parsons' friend, Phil Kaufman? Phil Kaufman, yeah. Phil Kaufman, I believe, released it. That makes sense. And Manson told him that he could keep all the proceeds or whatever, and, but I think they all ended up going to the families, which that's fair. Yeah. That's more than fair. That's probably I'm pretty sure Phil was like, nah, bro, I'm I'm gonna... Well, I mean... I'm gonna give this to the families that you murdered. Any dude that will steal his friend's body and burn it in the desert... Would probably release Charles Manson's music. Would release Charles Manson's music, but also dedicate all the proceeds to the victim's families. Yeah. So, Phil Kaufman... Again, Phil Kaufman. Phil Kaufman, Road Mangler, I salute you. Again. (laughs) Two weeks in a row, you get salutes, sir. <laughs> but beyond that, there's still artists that are influenced by him. I mean, Axl Rose, we mentioned. Obviously, Marilyn Manson. Yep. Sonic Youth had a song called Death Valley 69 that was all about the Manson family and the murders. And Trent Reznor recorded Downward Spiral. He actually rented Cielo Drive, the Cielo Drive shit. house, to record Downward Spiral. Damn. So, and then what happened was Sharon Tate's sister confronted him while he was, like, in the midst of it, I guess. Uh-huh. And just said, what's your fucking problem? Are you trying to exploit my sister's death? Like, this isn't What's cool. wrong with you? And Trent Reznor said, it was at that point that I realized I'm a huge asshole and this isn't cool and I don't want to be associated with Charles Manson bullshit, so we just took a shit and left. Like, That's he was kind like, of awesome. Yeah, he realized, like, I'm... Did I mean he was younger then too, and he's just he's like that's the first time someone brought that up, and I just thought like what if that was my fucking sister? I'd be pissed. Yeah. So Trent Reznor for a hot second had some association, but quickly tried to just fucking like, wipe himself. Sharon clean of Tate's it. sister took him from all the way up here, brought him way down here. Right. And he you did the are, right thing. You are a sad little plebe right now, yeah. Trent Reznor. Yeah. And he did the right thing and said, you know yeah. what? I'm wrong. I'm going to go ahead and... Uh, but that makes him a little bit yeah. more human. It does. Because it does. he wasn't just like, oh, fuck off. I'm a rock star. I'm doing whatever I want. Yeah. He was like, oh, you're right. But I'm really, a fucking asshole. It really adds an, an interesting layer to the downward spiral that I never thought yeah. of. Yeah. That makes it a little bit that's, creepier. That's already like a hard enough album to listen to. Yeah. I love Ugh. that album, but there's like a weird creepy... Oh, atmosphere to it very much so that makes a whole lot of sense now yeah it does i think it was also when he was trying to get off heroin when he was working on it i'll do it i'll do it (laughs) and that'll do it for us (laughs) that was that's all on our cult guys again we thought we were gonna go into a lot more dudes went into less dudes but a lot more detail so yeah hopefully y'all enjoyed that i guess this just means we'll have to do another cults episode i guess uh maybe we'll make it a thing every october oh darn oh no i just hate it i hate true crime (laughs) and music and beer these are all things i don't like 
Please don't give them to me. How dare you? <laughs> How dare me? How dare me? Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. Appreciate you listening to us. Love you. Proud of you. Mostly proud of you. <laughs> Getting through all this creepy ass shit. But next week it'll probably be even creepier. Just as creepy. Just as weird and spoopy. Yeah, because I don't know, October is like our, our opportunity to get real fucking weird and creepy with it. And we're not we're not going to not take advantage of that. No holds barred. No holds barred. No holds barred. Spooptober. Ooh, I like Spooptoberfest. it. Spooptoberfest. I'll wrap it up now with, uh, you want to follow us on social meds, you can hit us up on Twitter at Rock Candy Pod, Instagram and Facebook at Rock Candy Podcast. You can also just go to our website, www.rockcandypodcast.com. You can download episodes, comment on them, send us an email, whatever you feel like. And then just just keep listening to us. We like it. We want to be listened to. We need your love and approval. Do it. Give it to us. Gosh darn it. People like us. I think so. I hope so. Fingers crossed. Otherwise, why are you listening to us right yeah. now? <laughs> what are you doing here? Go home. Get out of here. And with that, pray on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. Party on, you crazy kids out there. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.